little balanced when I was in high school. I, uh, I was uh, president of the chess club. <laughs> now, you laugh, but I have, you know, I go to church to church, and I meet with all these folks that they played football, you know, when they were in high school or college, and their knees don't work anymore. <laughs> and they're hobbling around, you know. And I said, you should have done what I did, just, you know, this, you know. And it still works. See, I can, I can still do that. Okay, so I think I got the better deal out of that, being a science nerd. I think I got the better deal out of that. Important thing is, is that whatever the Lord gives you, you use it for him. And so I got the science stuff, so I try to use the science stuff for him. And my wife got the organizational gene, and she uses that to keep me organized. And uh, you all have something. I don't know what it is, but you all have something that you can use to benefit the church and his people. And you just got to figure out what that is and do it. All right? That's very simple. I know people, they think about spiritual gifts and they, you know, they agonize over this or that or whether the other. Um, just figure out what it is you can do. And if everybody did whatever it is they do, uh, just think how much better the, the church would be off, you know, as far as ministering uh, to others and our community will be better as well okay that was free that's the advertisement we are in ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 and uh, there should be some time at the end for questions again so any science questions that you have i'll be happy to field those we had some good questions this morning i thought the quality was really good telling um, Joe, I think it was Joe, was telling him at lunch about how I had somebody in the congregation and he said, he asked me this question, I don't know whether I was tired or I don't know what the problem was, and, but it was a ridiculous question. I'm usually more gracious than that. And I said, well, that's just wrong, just like that. And the congregation applauded. <laughs> They said, we don't care anything else you, you said tonight uh, compared to telling John that he's wrong. Nobody's been able to tell John that he was wrong. And they were so thrilled <laughs> that I did that. So if, if you're out there and you're like that, don't, don't ask me a question. All right? <laughs> you know, every, every fundamental church has at least, uh, you know, one crazy person in it. <laughs> And uh, you know who you are, okay, <laughs> probably. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He, had made, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. How do we know that there's actually eternal significance to everything that we do. Well, we see in this verse, fascinating verse, resonates with me as a student of science. The main idea expressed by Solomon is that God's plan is unfathomable. And yet God has placed within the heart of every person a sense of something eternal and desire to know the eternal significance of what we do. So how do we know? There is actually eternal significance to everything because God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time. So join with me in a quest to appreciate the beauty that God has created, understand how that created beauty gives meaning to our existence, 
and helps us understand how everything fits together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here again and talk about your creative wisdom and the beauty that you created in the world. I pray you'll open eyes tonight to the beauty of your creation and the wonders of your uh, majesty and wisdom. And uh, bless in the words that I say and bless in those who hear, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So what is beauty? Well, our text defines beauty in two of two attributes implied in the original language. The beautiful things God has made all fit together in an appropriate way at the proper time. For example, I could say the baby's face is beautiful. But an 80-year-old with a baby face would be grotesque, would not be beautiful. It has to be appropriate to the age. On the other hand, Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, the beauty of old men is the gray head. Gray hair appears at the appropriate time and fits old men perfectly. You ever seen an elderly man who dyes their hair and it looks weird? It really looks weird. And uh, so the gray hair is appropriate to the older man. Another example, when I say that a musical composition is beautiful, I'm implying that the melody and harmony and rhythm all fit together and the music is appropriate to the occasion. Now, my father was an immigrant from Slovakia and had a seventh grade education. He was, worked as a butcher and uh, he, but he liked Sousa's Marches. And we had records, you remember records? We had records, Sousa's March, and he'd play those around the house and we'd march around the house in the Sousa's Marches. But you know, I didn't hear any Sousa's Marches today in church, uh, not one. I mean, it's good music, okay? Why, I, why don't I ever hear any Sousa's Marches in church? Because it's not appropriate to the occasion, okay? It has to be appropriate. To the occasion. Well, how does the dictionary definition of beauty fit in with Ecclesiastes 3.11? Here I'll give you four dictionary definitions. Number one, prevailing style or taste, rage, fashion. Now it's true that certain clothing styles or haircuts look ridiculous in the wrong era. They had to fit current taste in order to add rather than subtract from beauty. However, the temptation is to think that beauty only is in the eye or the culturally conditioned eye of the beholder. Whatever moves us personally. But that's not true. Taste for natural beauty and for the arts travels across cultures with great ease. Uh, for example, I understand that the music of Beethoven is adored in Japan. Now, we took mission teams to Australia for 23 years years and we would always make sure that they got a tour of the Sydney Opera House, that iconic structure, structure there in the Sydney uh, Harbor. And does the Sydney Opera House have objective beauty? Well, if I asked an architect, he would speak to me of patterns and curves and borders and brightness and contrast and purity and smoothness, all features that contribute to beauty that are recognized all over the world. It's not just fashion the Sydney Opera House has objective beauty because it has many beautiful features that are combined to produce a beautiful overall effect. The beauty is real. It's not an accident. It points to a designer. Number two, a beautiful person. 
especially a beautiful woman. I'm certainly not going to deny there are many beautiful women in the Bible, like Job's daughters, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and Esther, and Abigail, Abishag, the Queen of Sheba, not to mention many handsome men like Joseph, and David, and Absalom, and Daniel. Did you ever wonder how you could recognize a beautiful face when you see one? Science has the answer. Okay. You know how when you go to an optometrist, they put these different lenses in front of your face. They say, does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? That's, well, they did that. They took pictures of people from all over the world, and they put them in front of people, and they said, is this person more beautiful than this person? Is this person more beautiful than that person? Wanted to see what characteristic of beauty transcends culture and how we recognize a beautiful face and find the most attractive person in the world. Well, what we found is that a beautiful person's face is about a hundred, about, excuse me, about one and a half times longer than it is wide. Next, people unconsciously looked at three segments of the face, from where my hairline used to be to between my eyes, from between my eyes to under my nose, from under my nose to the bottom of my chin. If those three segments are the same size, same length, then we consider that person to be more beautiful or more handsome. Now, I can see you, so don't start doing that while I'm talking, all right? You wait till you get home in the bathroom and do that to see how beautiful you are. So I, I, I was the other day, I was doing, talking about this, and there was a girl out there doing you know, so I said, I see you. Okay. And she, she got all red. And then we look at, um, you know, other things like... Um, a perfect face, the length of an ear is equal to the length of the nose, the width of an eye is equal to the distance between the eyes, and so forth. And so they found the most beautiful person, at least in that sample of pictures they had, turned out to be an 18-year-old shop girl in London, was said to have the most beautiful face in the world by the numbers. And she was very pretty. You know, it's interesting that when the creator made Adam and Eve, he made them symmetrical on the outside, but asymmetrical or non-symmetrical on the inside. Do you ever think about that? Evolutionists have a real hard time trying to figure out how you would evolve a creature that's symmetrical on the outside and asymmetrical on the inside. Just think if we had jellyfish skin. Okay? Wouldn't that be beautiful? See your stomach over here, and your liver over here, your intestines. You know, it wouldn't be very beautiful at all. He clothed us in skin that's symmetrical uh, because we look more beautiful. We look better that way. Number three, a particular grace, feature, adornment, or excellence, anything beautiful as in the beauties of nature. Now this dictionary definition corresponds very beautifully with Paul's command about what to think about. I'm going to turn over to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Here the apostle Paul tells us, commands us what the believer should spend his or her time thinking about. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Notice that the beautiful things from a Christian perspective are true. They're valid, honest, reliable. They're honorable or noble, worthy of respect. They're right, just, and upright. They're pure, clean, and morally 
pure. They're lovely, amiable, agreeable, pleasing, of good repute or admirable, but is praiseworthy because it measures up to the highest standards. Now, because we have free wills, we can spend our time thinking about ugly things if we choose to. Uh, I'm alarmed at sometimes how much of our entertainment on the TV or the internet or whatever is ugliness. You know, things about crime shows and, and violence and warfare and so forth, things that are ugly. And uh, there must be something wrong with that. But anyway, uh, you know, and some people say, well, how about the unclothed human body? Symmetrical, right? Uh, created by God. Shouldn't that be put on display? Isn't that beautiful? But listen to what it says in, in, in Revelation 3.18. It says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Okay, every time you see nakedness in the Bible, it's associated with shame. Okay. So why is that? Because it doesn't meet the purity test that we saw there in Philippians. It has to meet the purity test as well, among other things. Number four, an assemblage of, of, of graces or properties pleasing to the eye, the ear, the intellect, the aesthetic faculty, or the moral sense. Now, aesthetics is that field that's concerned with beauty or the appreciation of beauty. And notice how that definition blends aesthetics with ethics, just like we saw in Philippians 4.8 and other passages in Scripture. Now, no one doubts that the Bible is an ethical book, uh, but you need to understand that the words of Scripture were everywhere inspired and written in an atmosphere of aesthetics as well. We see this all the way from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, we, we see man putting in an appearance in a garden where grew every tree that was pleasant to the sight. All the way to the last vision of mankind in an abode in a city whose gates were of pearl and streets were of gold. So the imagery of scripture is from beginning to end a picture of aesthetics wedded to righteousness. The beautiful and the good and the whole range of holy scripture. So how should Bible-believing Christians think about beauty? There's much beauty in this world. We're able to find beauty in many things. A work of art, a piece of music, magnificent landscape. And we're drawn to beauty. It can even move us emotionally, but it doesn't always leave us satisfied. We always want more. So we were on our way to Australia. We used to, we would try to get there before the team members did so we could uh, be fresh and not have jet lag when they arrived. And we had an extra week for some reason, and we thought, now where would, as a creation scientist, where would I like to go? And I thought, I know where I want to go. I want to go to Mount St. Helens there in Washington. And uh, we had a beautiful day there. It was a beautiful Sunday, which is unusual in that area of the world. If you've ever been to Mount St. Helens, that where it blew up and formed all those layers so quickly and so forth, and kind of a miniature, you know, what happened during the flood. Well, we went there, and they had this a visitor center, and they, they show you the, you know, all the people, talk about all the people who didn't heed the warning, and they are killed, and how everything was destroyed and so forth. 
And then they raise the screen, and then five miles away in this big picture window is Mount St. Helens. And I thought, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just want to soak it in. I never wanted to forget it. But, you know, the next day, I wanted to see something else beautiful. So we went to Multnomah Falls there in the, in the gorge, and that was beautiful. And the next day, I wanted to see something else beautiful. So we went down the Oregon coast and saw the waves crashing on the rocks. That was beautiful. And then the next day, we wanted to, to see uh, another, something beautiful. So we went to Mount Hood and saw the snow-capped peak and so forth. See what I'm saying? In other words, the, we can appreciate the beauty, but the beauty doesn't leave us satisfied. We can learn a lot from King David about how to think about beauty. David was surrounded by beauty, beautiful women, too many beautiful women, in fact, beautiful art, beautiful music, beautiful poetry, the beauties of nature. And listen to what he says here in Psalm 27 and verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. Here's what he cries out to God. He's surrounded by beauty, and this is what he says. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's saying the greatest gift that God could give him would be the privilege of spending his time contemplating and reflecting on the wonderful features of his God. David understood that the beauty with which he was surrounded was just reflected beauty. He understood there's such a thing as source beauty. The beauty of this world never brings us lasting satisfaction. Only divine beauty does. What is a source beauty? It's, it's hard to describe. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Weight of Glory, tries to describe it. And I'll read his words. Maybe that'll help us understand. He says, we do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. I don't fully understand what Lewis is expressing here, but I thought about that verse in 1 John 3, 2, and it helped me understand that a little bit more. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it does not appear as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. But even with our imperfect partial understanding, one fact is crystal clear. Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of beauty. Now, how do evolutionists explain the origin of beauty? Darwin and his followers, to them it all boils down to sexual selection. The example that Darwin himself used was the peacock's tail, which developed the way it did, according to him, in order to impress the peahen. However, you have to admit, it's a pretty big jump to get from peacocks to natural beauty and art and literature and music. But somehow they manage it because they don't have any other theory to work with. And peacock's feathers really are amazingly designed. There's a Peacock walking outside the eagle's nest there this afternoon, so I took some of his feathers and uh, didn't seem to mind. So peacock feathers are really amazingly designed. These are getting a little bedraggled. But the, uh, the, the colors that you see are a result of 
uh, layers of keratin that are built up at certain um, thicknesses. And the colors you see are a result of something we call thin film interference. You ever seen, you ever seen a uh, puddle of water and a little bit of, of oil on it? You get that rainbow? That's thin film interference, all right? And the thing is that the peacock feathers don't have any color themselves. The color all comes from the thin film interference of these precisely layered uh, keratin levels that they have. And it's in a certain pattern, as you can see, uh, that God has produced there. And it takes a lot of genetic information to produce this pattern. Of, and Plus, you get this iridescence. That's the, as you look at it at different angles, it, it, the color shifts. Okay? And uh, by the way, I understand that Rolls-Royce now has created an iridescent paint. Uh, I was taught, we, one church we were in, one of the deacons, that's what he did for a living, is he painted cars. And so he were talking about this Rolls-Royce paint that's iridescent. And so that'd be a problem for, you know, if you had to describe the getaway car, you know? <laughs> it, it's that color, no, it's that color, no, it's that, you know, it's, it changes color as it moves, you know, across your field of vision. And so we had a good time with that. Of course, you'd probably tell it was just a Rolls-Royce that probably to be identified good enough. And uh, so there's no, there's no uh, you know, survival advantage to it. There's no, I mean, and it takes all this extra genetic information to produce. Uh, you know, there's no way that the peacock feathers could have arisen by a series of genetic accidents. And another thing, you may notice that I'm not a peahen, but I think that peacock feathers are beautiful too. There's no particular reason why I should think that a peacock feather is beautiful, since I'm not a peahen. Well, you know, Charles Darwin lived in a, a pious age, and he used to write in that same fashion in the Victorian age, and he would be pious in his write, public writings, because he didn't want to offend people, especially Christians. But in private, he let his true feelings come out. Here's a quote from a letter he wrote to Asa Gray, April 3rd, 1860. He said, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. He was sickened. Look at a peacock. Anybody felt sick as I was holding those up there? Why did he feel sick? Why was he sick every time he saw a peacock's feather? because he understood the powerful argument that Peacock's tail made for the creator. He understood. He understood exactly what he was doing. And uh, it made him sick to see the peacock's tail. Well, what is, what is this added beauty that God has created? It's, you know, it's easy for a creation scientist like me to get so caught up in the evidence of God's creation. I miss the obvious. God made his handiwork so clear that even a child should be able to see it. The beauty of his work is inescapable, an undeniable witness to his existence. And the deeper we explore our world, the more beauty we find. Now, understand creation isn't just about explaining matter or the complex moving parts like we did this morning at Sunday school, but added beauty. Experience tells us that beauty doesn't come about by accident. It offers no obvious survival benefits, and many existing natural laws promote deterioration and decay. God not only created the earth's beauty, but he also sustains it. Jesus points out in Matthew 6, 29, that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like a single 
flower of the field. Atheist Steve Jones once wrote that evolution does its job and no more. This is why added beauty in creation is evidence of a creator. Only a designer can add beauty for the sake of beauty. It's, <clears throat> it's added beauty, he adds it, no extra charge that we can enjoy. A good example could be found in the color of things. Do you notice how God made the color of the earth the contrast with the sky? How strange it would be if both the earth and the sky were blue or both the earth and the sky were green. Now, sometimes when I'm talking to young children, I ask them if they have any questions, and they, they screw up their faces, and they try to think of the hardest question they can ask me, and they'll say, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Now, I could tell them the sky was blue because of the size of the air molecules and talk about Rayleigh light scattering and so forth, and uh, I think I'd lose them, wouldn't I? Or I could tell them about the photosynthesis that gives us the color green, uh, how it's a quantum mechanical effect, and how to, it takes light both from the red part of the spectrum and the blue part of the spectrum and leaves green left over. So I can't talk with them about that, uh, but they do understand instinctively that there is a designer behind this. There's a, there's a master artist who coordinated all the colors in a beautiful way that we would enjoy. There's no, even, there's no reason we should even see colors in the first place. Now, when I was, grew up in the 1950s, everything was black and white. I can show you picture, pictures to prove it, okay? It was all black and white back then. It was only in the 1960 we started seeing things in color, okay? But, but it's true, we could, we could see only black and white. There's some animals who can't see color. I mean, there's no particular reason why God should let us see this beauty, why our eyes should work for those particular frequencies, you see? And so it's a, it's a gift that our good God has given to us. There are two things of the hallmarks of God's creative style. Uh, those beautiful ideas, and those beautiful ideas are, number one, symmetry, a love of harmony and balance and proportion, and number two, economy, satisfaction, and producing an abundance of effects from very limited means. Ask any serious mathematician, and he or she will tell you that one of the reasons they became a mathematician was because mathematics is beautiful. It can even be elegant. Uh, we're used to the idea that mathematics is the language of science, but why it should be, uh, nobody has any answer to that. Uh, they had a whole Nova special on PBS about that. Why, why, is, why does mathematics describe this, the, you know, the motion of the planets and the, and the formation of a leaf or even the photosynthetic process and so forth? And they spent a whole hour and they couldn't come up to any conclusion. Why? We know why, because the same God who created the natural world is also the one who created the laws of mathematics. They have no answer to that question. The mathematical ideas of beauty and symmetry extend to sound waves and music. Why do tones whose frequencies are in ratio of small whole numbers sound good together? Why is it that tones that are slightly off, like C and C sharp, produce a painful sound? My daughter, Katie, who's married to a pastor in Australia, uh, she decided to take up the piccolo and learn that at home. And we had many painful sounds at home. <laughs> 
belief in creation increases a person's appreciation of beauty because that person knows that beauty is the work of a loving creator. This is what the hymn writer George Wade Robinson said of beauty. Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs or flow, flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. So what's the message of beauty in creation? Well, first of all, we've already seen the beauty of creation clearly reveals a creator to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaac Watts wrote, there's not a plant or flower below that makes thy glories known. The beauty of creation also shows that God cares deeply about man. We've already looked at that Matthew chapter 6 passage about the lilies of the field and how they're clothed. Well, if God cares about the, the flowers which are here today and gone tomorrow, uh, how much more does he care about us, human beings who are the pinnacle of God's creation? And then the beauty of creation can also remind us of a wonderful promise in scripture that God takes delight in his children and beautifies them salvation. Psalm 149 verse 4, for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Same way that a pearl starts off as a piece of grit and gets transformed into a beautiful pearl by being clothed with layers of nacre. So God transforms unclean sinners into a beautiful new creation by clothing them in the righteousness of Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, God didn't use beauty to bring us salvation. That's the ironic thing. God used ugliness to bring us salvation. The ugliness of the cross. Isaiah 52, 14, as many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Or Isaiah 53, 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I know some people wear beautiful gold or silver crosses as jewelry, and my purpose tonight is not to talk about religious jewelry, but we can all agree that there was nothing at all beautiful about a crucifixion with its blood and sweat, bones out of joint, victims gasping for breath, begging for water, faces distorted in agony. It's been so long ago that Christ was crucified, we, and, and the cross has been used as a sacred symbol so long uh, that we, we, we don't realize the unspeakable horror and loathing which even the mention or the thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. Even the Latin word crux or cross was unmentionable in polite Roman society. But despite that, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The glory was not in the cross itself. I've seen pictures of Syrian Christians that were crucified by ISIS. Truly one of the most horrible ways of slow death devised by the black heart of sinful men. But Paul boasted only 
in Christ's cross, the work of Christ for him. That's all he took pride in. The cross is a symbol of shame. Because of the cross, the world system had lost its appeal to Paul, and he had lost his appeal to the world. And that's how the ugliest thing in the world became the most beautiful thing, at least in the eyes of Christians. Does that, does that all resonate with you? Can, you? can you sit here and think, that doesn't make any sense to me. How, how could uh, torture and a cross, how could that be so beautiful? What are these people talking about? If that doesn't resonate with you, I'm sure there's a lot of folks here who would like to tell you why we believe the cross of Christ is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. That brings us to another ugly thing that Christ makes beautiful, makes beautiful, that's our feet. I bet there's a lot of people here that have beautiful feet. Romans 10, 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So unmatched beauty in one person sharing the good news of salvation with another, no matter how haltingly. When you tell someone the good news of salvation, the cross of Christ, the ground you're standing on with your beautiful feet becomes holy ground. In the end, all the beauty in heaven and earth point to the beautiful Savior that we have. Do you know him? Is he at all beautiful to you? We have a few minutes for questions. Anybody have some science questions that I can help with? If you have a question, no doubt somebody else has the same question. You just have to be old enough to be the first person to raise your hand. Ask it. <laughs> 